So last week we began a new sermon series, and we're calling that series Habits of Happiness. It's based on eight statements about happiness made by Jesus Christ at this, the beginning, here in Matthew 5, of his great Sermon on the Mount. And last week we learned a number of things about all eight of these statements that Jesus makes. For example, we learned that each one begins with the word blessed. And we learned that that's an old English word to describe inner heart happiness. So that's what Jesus is talking about in each one of these statements, the whole issue of happiness. We also learned that each is a counter-cultural statement. For example, our world would say to us, happy are the rich, right? And we learned last week in the statement we examined, the first of the eight statements, where Jesus says, no, no, that's not it. Happy are the poor. Not the rich, the poor. The poor in spirit, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, our culture would say, happy are the joyful. And Jesus says, no, you've got that wrong too. It's not happy are the joyful, but rather happy are the mournful. Happy are the sad. Happy are those who mourn, Jesus says, because they, and the thought is, they alone will be comforted. Now, we don't like to talk about mourning, do we, in our culture? I mean, basically, our society is addicted to escaping from emotional pain. And the whole idea is, you know, do whatever it takes to keep your problems emotionally at a great distance. Travel, get out of Dodge, binge watch your favorite TV series, you know, do whatever it takes in order to escape from whatever problems are affecting you. Now, there's an aspect of truth, of course, to all of this. We shouldn't be focusing on our problems all of the time, and we're told it can be a good thing in terms of our emotional health if we're doing some things that give a measure of satisfaction to our hearts. But on the other hand, if those things become means of escape from reality, that can be, of course, a danger. Now, meanwhile, Jesus here is announcing, if you want to know deep down inward heart satisfaction and happiness, and not just a temporary fix, you know, to forget your troubles for a time, then mourn. And we hear Jesus' words, and perhaps we're tempted to think, seriously? <laughs> I mean, happy are the sad? Come on, Jesus, get with it. Well, he's talking here to and about Christian people. And in essence, he's describing the enormous difference that exists between the values and life in the kingdom of heaven compared to the values and way of life in the kingdom of earth. And it's an amazing contrast. So, for example, what the world turns to in its pursuit of happiness, Jesus, in essence, is saying it's not just a bad idea. In addition to that, it's one that's doomed to failure. And what the world quickly dismisses, Jesus is saying, is the very characteristic you need to experience inner, authentic happiness in your life. Now, hopefully, the radical nature of what Jesus is describing here in this second statement will be clearer to us as we examine the two, things, two thoughts, ideas that are on your sermon outline, the meaning of the morning, and then we want to consider the character of the comfort. So that's where we're going in the teaching this morning. 
First of all, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, what in the world is he talking about? What is the nature or the meaning of this mourning? Well, let me begin with a couple of negatives, what he does not mean. First of all, he does not mean blessed or happy or grim, sour-faced, joyless Christians. Know anybody like that? You know, don't look around the room maybe right now, but perhaps you know somebody like that. Well, the Bible, of course, recognizes the importance of laughter and humor. Look at this statement in Proverbs 17. Being cheerful keeps you healthy. It's a slow death to be gloomy all the time. And so Jesus is not advocating here when he says, blessed or happy are, the, are those who mourn. He's not advocating a grim, joyless approach to life. Now, the second of these negatives may be a little bit more challenging for us to accept. And here it is. Jesus is not talking about mourning over the death of a loved one. Many of us have been there. We know the heartache and the pain the sense of separation, the grief that grips the heart and life when someone that we care about passes away. And essentially, you know, some people will say to us, just get over it. But there are kinds of grief experiences that we never completely get over in this life. And of course, it's not simply the loss of, of life that can grip us and fill us with a sense of grief or mourning. There are all kinds of potential grief experiences. You know, when there's the breakup of a marriage, when you lose your job, when you move to a new location and your kids are involved in a new school where they don't know anybody, nobody knows that, you know, it can be a difficult grief experience as you grieve the loss of friendships, for example, because of that move. So there are all kinds of things that give us a sense of grief in life. And certainly, the Bible elsewhere recognizes the legitimacy of grieving those kinds of losses. I'm just saying that that's not what Jesus is talking about in this particular passage. So that's not to suggest, please don't misunderstand me, this is not to suggest that Jesus is unconcerned about our suffering. I mean, elsewhere, he promises us the the presence of the Comforter, right? The Holy Spirit. And he brings us into community as a church because we need the support that comes from one another when we're going through hard times. We all recognize that. It's just that this is not what Jesus is talking about in this context. Now, last week, we looked at the context of these eight statements, and we learned that they're really talking about spiritual realities. In other words, what matters is one's heart relationship to the living God. So if Jesus is not talking about having a grim, sour-faced, joyless approach to Christianity, and if he's not necessarily directly talking about mourning over the death of a loved one or other kinds of such experiences, what in the world positively then is he talking about? He's saying that to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, to be a Christian as a characteristic of one's life, there will be present to some degree a grief or a mourning over sin. So, take the expression, you know, of when you go through a gut-wrenching kind of loss, 
and apply those emotions to feelings of sin, to injustice, okay? Now, to be more specific, first of all, Jesus has in mind are having a deep sorrow over the sins of society. In other words, the sins of others. You and I can't listen to or watch a news report these days without being gripped by the sense of violence that characterizes our culture today. I mean, it's right here in our city of Minneapolis. Senseless shootings, I mean, it, it's just getting crazy, isn't it? In addition to all of the violence, people's anger over all kinds of political issues, things that weren't necessarily considered political issues before, or certainly now, fights breaking out on airplanes, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Racial strife, right here in our city of Minneapolis. And of course, human trafficking is right here in our city as well. Abortion issues, 1.2 million children aborted in our country every single year. 22% of all pregnancies. And so knowing that directly or indirectly, all of these kinds of expressions of wrong and hurt and, and injustice are the result of sin, Jesus is saying we mourn. So he's talking about someone who is a Christian grieving over the sins of society. We don't find racial slurs funny. You know, we grieve over them. And where there is terror, where children are forced into prostitution, where there is poverty or the murder of the unborn, any of these kinds of things, Christian's heart is broken over such expressions of wickedness. I mean, it, it provokes feelings within us of sorrow and pain. And so we identify with the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he says this, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Or we identify with Ezekiel, who heard God's people described this way, who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in Jerusalem, in the city. City that's set aside for the purposes of God and corporate worship and such. He's he, grieving over it. Or there's the Apostle Paul in the New Testament where he says, I now say even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So a Christian is to have a social conscience. Those in Jesus' kingdom know what it's like then to mourn over institutional evil, systemic sin, those kinds of things in our society. But you know, it's not just the sins of society over which we grieve. Also, we sorrow over the sin of self, that is to say, our own sin. You know, I think it's interesting that uh, when you study the lives of the people in the Bible that we think are just heroes of the faith, dedicated, sold out, serving the purposes of God, you know, the kinds of people over which we, uh, we name our cities, St. Paul, or our universities, St. Thomas, or St. John's, those kinds of individuals, we think of them as so righteous and pious, right? But according to their own words, they were keenly aware of their own brokenness and sinfulness before a holy God. And so, for example, in Psalm 51, David cries out, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And he said that after committing adultery and murder. Or how about the words of the Apostle Paul? Here's a man who establishes churches 
writes God-inspired letters that are found in the pages of our New Testament portion of Scripture, and yet he's so keenly aware of his own brokenness, his own ongoing battle with sin that he can write in Romans 7, and he says, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, oh boy, yeah, that I keep on doing. As Christians, I think we sometimes have this mistaken idea that, sure, somebody who has been living a wild, sensual kind of a lifestyle, who then becomes a Christ follower, yeah, that person is going to mourn or grieve his or her past. But you know, the idea is, when we become Christians, we often think any sense of sin we quickly dismiss. Why? Well, because we just are filled with the marvel and the wonder of God's forgiving grace. Friends, that's not the way it is. I mean, it's just like the stories of David or Paul or others we could talk about. Our sensitivity to sin does not increase as we become spiritually mature. I mean, if anything, it increases. So the so-called, you know, little sins over which, you know, we perhaps in the past we simply ignored or were ignorant of dark areas of our personalities, for instance, now cause us grief. And so when Jesus says in this statement, blessed, happy are those who mourn, he's saying that the person who has come to experience true inner heart happiness is one who feels the pain and agony of sin, sin of society, but also the sins of self. Now, I think this raises a question. I know it does for me, and maybe it does for you. And the question is, why? I mean, why is this so? What is there about sin that provokes such a strong emotional reaction? Well, we might think that the reason why we feel so bad in the face of sin is because it breaks one of God's rules. Well, certainly when we sin, we are breaking one of God's rules. But Christianity in its essence is not about a bunch of rules, is it? It's about a relationship. When I violate a rule, you know, maybe I don't stop fully at a stop sign, or I don't properly um, signal when I'm changing lanes or exiting from the highway, or I'm going a little bit too fast for the posted speed, and I get pulled over. Am I going to grieve? Yeah, there's a twinge of guilt, especially if I'm handed a ticket, right? But in reality, when I violate a relationship that's important to me, wow, that's what really causes grief. Well, Christianity involves a relationship. And so when you and I disobey any part of God's word, if we claim to be Christian people, we betray the most meaningful person in our entire lives. So if you claim to be a Christian, but you betray the most important person, and there's no emotional reaction on your part to that, friend, I think you're in trouble. I mean, something might be wrong with your faith. Now, it causes me then to ask you this question. Have you ever mourned or grieved over your disobedience to the Lord? Or are you kind of flippant about it? You know, that's just some ancient command tucked away in that book, the Bible. Or, yeah, I know what the Bible tells me I should be doing right now, and maybe someday I'll get around to doing it, but not quite yet. 
Friends, every time we disobey the word of God by sins of omission, we omit doing the, you know, the good that God says to do, or sins of commission where we commit the wrong he says not to do, we are betraying and violating the most precious relationship we have. And what I'm saying is, if there is no grief, if there is sort of a cold indifference to the whole thing, there is reason to question the sincerity of your faith. You may not have saving faith. Now, emotionally, we're all different, right? I mean, some people just exude emotion. You can tell immediately if they're happy, sad, what kind of emotional state they're in. We talk about people wearing their emotions on their sleeves. Others of us tend to be a little bit more private, and we internalize a lot of our emotion. But the reality is, once we realize we have betrayed the most important person to us, namely the living God himself, regardless of our emotional makeup, if there is not some sense of pain, something is wrong with our hearts. You don't violate your relationship to the living God and go, oops, you know, boys will be boys or girls will be girls and that kind of thing. Or what's the big deal? You know, you say, I'm a sinner. And I violated my relationship to the living God. And so I want to just say straight out today, if you have never grieved over betraying God through your disobedience, you may not be a Christ follower. If you think that what you've done is simply disobedience to some rule, you know, maybe you don't even know Jesus. Think of it like this. If any of us could go home from the service today, home to wife, husband, children, parents, others in our lives who are really important to us, and we say or do something that is extremely hurtful, okay, causes trust to be essentially destroyed at that moment. So we're talking about something that's a big deal. We kind of thumb our nose at the whole thing and blow it off or get over it, that kind of an attitude. One needs to question if at that point you really love that person that you hurt, right? I mean, you live together perhaps, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you love that individual because if we really care about them, it's going to grieve us. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. Now, let's go a little bit further with all of this, shall we? How does this kind of mourning really express itself? Well, one author describes four action steps that will be present with regard to this kind of mourning, and I want to share them with you right now. First of all, it involves confession of sin. Confession of sin. You know, it's interesting. The, the New Testament word translated to confess literally means to say the same thing about it that God says. In other words, instead of sort of giving it a polite title, watering it down so it sounds more acceptable, no. You call that act, whatever it was, exactly what God says about it. He calls it sin, and so we call it sin. We're admitting the wrong. But mourning or grieving our sin or that of society also leads to a second step, and it also involves remorse or regret for the action. In other words, it's not simply a cold confession. Yeah, God, you got me this time. You know, I admit it. I was wrong. Anyone thinks that God is going to settle for, yeah, God, I did it. 
you know, certainly they're missing the whole point. You're sorry for the action. So there's not only confession. Secondly, there is remorse or regret. Thirdly, you're accepting personal responsibility for your behavior. So in other words, you're not blaming it on a parent. You're not blaming it on your third grade teacher or some coach or somebody or something else in your life. No, you are owning it. You're saying, Lord, I willfully chose to do this. I accept responsibility for it. And then finally, if others were hurt or injured by your behavior, you may also need to make restitution. Where, of course, at that point, you seek their forgiveness and you pay for any damage that may be done. So, what does mourning involve? Confession. Regret. Accepting responsibility for your behavior. And it may involve this matter of restitution. And so, it's David. After committing adultery with Bathsheba and trying to cover up the whole affair by having her husband Uriah murdered... I mean, he cries out, I'm a sinner, O God. Or one thinks of the words of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector who typically, as most tax collectors did back in those days, overcharged people. And so he's confronted by the presence of Christ. And he says this in Luke chapter 19. Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back, him back four times the amount. So Jesus says, when you are crushed and broken over your sin like that, happy are you. Why? Because you are about to experience a kind of comfort of which the world knows absolutely nothing. Now, before we get to the character of the comfort, however, I want to make a quick clarification right here. Some of you may be just very quick to lay guilt trips on yourself. But we're not talking here, Jesus isn't talking about some kind of neurotic uh, type of guilt appropriation over every little failure in your life or mine. Nor is he talking about self-crucifixion where we think our tears are sort of an act of penance. No, I mean, it's not your tears or sorrow that effects forgiveness. It's what? The mercy of God offered to us in the person of Christ, who, as we'll celebrate today in communion, lay down his very life for you and for me. What your tears and sorrow demonstrate is the fact that you're sincere in your brokenness for having violated your relationship to God. You know what David said after he sinned? His words are recorded for us, fortunately, in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you say, wait a minute, didn't he violate Bathsheba and sin against her? Yeah, he did. And her husband? Yeah, he did. And really, you could add to that the entire nation of Israel because he was its king. But what he's saying is, Lord, when I sin, the primary person I violate is you. Well, fortunately for us, we can move beyond the meaning of the morning into the character of the comfort. Otherwise, we'd walk out of here kind of depressed today, wouldn't I? I mean, this is heavy stuff. 
So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, what is the character of this comfort? What in the world is he talking about? Three things. First of all, there is the comfort of knowing that we have been delivered from the penalty of our sin. So we don't have to remain in a state of brokenness and sorrow over our sin because the good news is when we were far from God, Jesus sent, was sent into the world to provide a rescue. Remember how this was illustrated for you a couple of weeks ago? I had two very large books up here, and I lifted up one, Ugh, heavy book, and I indicated to you that was, let's imagine, that's a record of all of my sin before a holy God. Well, there's no way I could have a relationship with him as long as I have this bad record of sin. If this other hand I mentioned is the life of Jesus, what God does is to take that entire record of my sin and he charges it to Christ. And on the cross, he becomes my sin-bearing substitute. So now I stand before God, I don't have a bad record, but neither am I righteous. And I need to have a right standing before him to gain his favor and acceptance and go to heaven when I die, to have hope beyond the grave. So the father takes the record, the perfect record of obedience rendered by his son, and he credits that to me. So now a holy, righteous God can forgive me and pardon me of everything in my past. The Bible gives us an amazing statement to this effect in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Well, what did he do with them? For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. And then he takes the obedience of his son and credits that to us. So Paul can end by saying, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Is it any wonder that we are comforted with a comfort that the world knows nothing about? And that is to know that we are totally and permanently forgiven and delivered from sin's penalty. That's comfort. But there's another type, and that's the comfort of knowing that we can be delivered from the power of present sin. I realize that the Bible indicates to us that sin is something that's always going to be part of our lives while we live in this broken world. Okay? That's true. But although sin, the disease, is something that we'll always carry with us as long as we live in this world, it's not true that we need to be defeated by any particular sin, especially the sin over which we have mourned. Now, I know from even personal experience that some sins have a kind of addictive power. Their grip on us can be just very strong to the point where we might think we are just destined to live and wallow in despair the rest of our days and know no victory. That is simply not the case. You know, I think of individuals, though, who are struggling with certain kinds of heterosexual or homosexual sins or struggle with anger management, or maybe it's a matter of pornography or substance abuse or something of that nature. And if that's you, you may need ongoing encouragement from a trusted Christian friend who will love you and be there for you and hold you accountable for the rest of your life. 
And you may benefit from going to a reliable Christian counselor who can help you to process the emotional needs behind those areas that you think can only be met in this wrong way. Because the reality is when we're struggling with all kinds of sinful behavior patterns, typically we are trying to meet a certain kind of emotional need, a God-given need being met in an inappropriate way. And so a Christian counselor can oftentimes help us with regard to those things. But it's not true that you have to live in defeat. Daily temptation, maybe. Daily defeat, no. Look at this statement by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I mean, what comfort that brings. The comfort of knowing that we can be delivered from the power of present sin. And then the final aspect of this comfort lies in the fact that one day, one day, Jesus is going to deliver us from the very presence of sin. Until then, we groan. You know, we're like the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 8, where he says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And so the day is coming when Christ is going to appear. We're going to be in his presence. No more mourning no more grieving sins of society because all of that will be gone. We'll be living in a perfect world. We'll be perfected in Christ as well. And so that's another kind of comfort we can look forward to with respect to that hope. Now, for some takeaways this morning, I want to address three groups of people. This is not on your outline, by the way, but you might want to write down some of these summary thoughts. First of all, some of you here um, may be fairly new Christians. And maybe you're still having you know, frequent falls, struggles with chemicals, sexual sins, vocabulary sins, whatever. Now, when you sin and the Holy Spirit convicts you regarding you know, the, what the Word of God has pointed out in your life, grieve over that. Learn to hate your sin and to fight against it by the power of Christ and his grace to you. You know, you're, you're saying, I'm sorry, God, I, I grieve this. But you don't stay in that state. Accept the promise regarding deliverance from the penalty of sin, from the power of, of present sin, and one day from the very presence of sin itself. Then, secondly, others of you perhaps have been Christians for years. And maybe you're not falling into the so-called more spectacular sins like perhaps you once did. But I'm just wondering this morning if you grieve over small unholy thoughts, small acts of, you know, unkindness. What about when it comes to, um, uh, I don't know, we can make up, talk about all kinds of things, expressions of pride, self-centeredness an unwillingness to serve God with the gifts he's given to you or to support the ministry of the church through your offerings where you're robbing God, holding grudges where you refuse to forgive somebody who has wronged you. Even though God and Christ has forgiven you, you are not going to forgive somebody else. Do you grieve over such things or is yours an attitude at this point of cold indifference? When there's that unholy thought that enters your mind and you're dwelling on it. You know, you're saying, Lord, I'm sorry for this. I don't want to focus on this because I know it can violate the one relationship I really care about. 
Thirdly, and finally, still others here may not yet be Christ followers. Think of the story of Hosea, where he's told by God to go into the city, find a prostitute, and marry her. And he's like, really? I mean, I don't think this is a good idea, but he, he obeys. He goes into the city, into the marketplace, finds a prostitute, marries her, ends up having three kids with her. But the whole time he's thinking, Lord, I, don't, I just don't know that this is a good idea at all. Well, God, in effect, says back, prophet, I do this all the time. I go into the marketplaces of this world. And when I find people who are unfaithful, who are far from me, I extend grace and love to them. And if they will repent, if they will come back to me, I will forgive them and they can be restored. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here this morning and you're still in the marketplace of sin. Well, God wants you to know he's ready to marry you, to enter into a loving relationship with you if you'll trust in the person of Christ and his sacrifice for you. And so for all of us this morning, Jesus offers an amazing word of encouragement and hope and grace, that being blessed, happy, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are that you call us to true inner heart happiness. Not just the short-lived pleasure that comes from escaping from reality, but the deep, lasting joy, which is the inner delight of those who, having acknowledged their wrong and grieved over it, Receive your comfort in the form of forgiveness and freedom. Father, may the promise of such comfort encourage us to own up to our wrongs where we need to do that, and may it promote in us as well a new commitment to heart purity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.